I'm having a goddamn blast on tour with this Big Mouth and a Small Town tour. So I've added some dates and wanted to let you know where I'm headed next. Uh, yeah, March 14th, I will be in Lakeside, Arizona. And then the 15th and 16th, I'm finally coming to Tucson. So if you're in Tucson, I'm coming to Laughs Comedy Cafe. Get your tickets. We're going to have a good time. My good friend Noah Koffer will be featuring at those shows. He'll also be with me the following weekend when I come to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Grins, I cannot wait to see you guys again. Those are always some of my favorite shows, and I'm sure this year will be no exception. And then I am headed up to my home state of Alaska for the Alaska Before You Die Fest. Anchorage, you better not fucking sit on these tickets. They're going fast. There's a few left. Uh, April 5th, I will be doing shows at the Gumbo House. It's downtown. I'm doing an early and a late show, one night only. It's an intimate venue, so tickets are limited. It's going to be out of control. If you've come to my show at Coots before, you know how fun they are. This venue is so much better for comedy. I can't even explain it. Just get fucking tickets. These shows are going to be wild. And then on the 6th, I'm headed down to Homer. Homer, Alaska. I am coming, performing there for the first time. Alice's Champagne Palace. And then on the 7th, I will be in Seward, Alaska. So Anchorage, Homer, Seward. We're having a goddamn good time. I'm going to come kill at all those shows because I'm a fucking Alaskan assassin. Am I sorry I said that? I don't know. Listen. Dayton, Kentucky, 12th of April. If you are in the Cincinnati-ish area, Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Kentucky, this is your chance to see me at a really cool new venue called the Commonwealth Sanctuary. And then I am headed to Portland, May 3rd. I'm headlining the Rip City Comedy Festival. I will be at McMenamin's Mission Theater. You guys, this is a cool theater. We want it to be packed out because, of course I want it to be packed out, but also like, Let's have a goddamn good time in this nice, beautiful theater. So come to that. It's going to be a hell of a time. I can't wait to come back to Portland. And then Wisconsin. I'm headed back your way. But this time I'm coming to Janesville, May 17th and 18th. Green Bay on the 19th. And then what up, Florida? St. Pete, Tampa. I'm coming your way. Uh, Tampa, I will be there June 2nd. And St. Pete, um, they're ahead of that, uh, May 31st. Tampa, I'm at Side Splitters. And if you go to the links in all of my bios or go to their website to get tickets, for a limited time, you can use the code JMS and get $5 off tickets. And wherever you are, I'm trying to get people to buy tickets early instead of waiting to the last minute and making me panic so that if it is going to sell out, it sells out faster so that I know that, the club knows that, maybe we can add a second show. Just FYI, that helps every artist that you're a fan of. So if you can ever buy ASAP, go ahead and do that. Uh, So that's your incentive to buy early in Tampa. And uh, uh, I'll be adding more dates soon. If you did not hear your town, but you want me to come there, head over to my Instagram, instagram.com slash jmscomedy or just at jmscomedy if you're using the app like most of us. Uh, click the link in my bio, join my email list. That lets me know where you guys are so I know what areas want to come see me. Uh, so do that. I can't wait to get to more cities. I'm having so much fucking fun on the road. You guys have been amazing. People have been buying merch. These audiences have been out of control, good, just electric, laughing, having a blast. And I know all these upcoming shows are going to be no exception. So I will see you there jmscomedy.com slash shows to get your tickets. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We're going to have a fucking good time either way. So thanks for listening to this little promo. Enjoy this episode. Ta-ta, idiots.
What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. What kind of ignorant shit is that? At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. You idiot, you fool! Hey, dummy! This is the Ignorance is Blessed podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hey, idiots, welcome to another episode of Ignorance is Blessed with me, Jessica Michelle Singleton. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm your host. I'm a fucking idiot. And that's why we're here. Listen, I'm excited for this episode. So I was delayed in getting this uh, set to go out. It's coming out on time. But because I actually allowed myself to relax over New Year's for once in my fucking life, I didn't have it (coughs) queued up. Excuse me. So I did a brief vote in my Instagram stories on which of a few episode options I have canned, ready to go out, you guys would like to hear. And this is what won the vote, and I'm so excited. Also, as a side note, uh, it's a testament to how much I relaxed that I didn't even have a plan of which episodes I wanted to come out yet uh, drafted up, you know. That's usually a thing I do ahead is I map them out. I've got a bunch in the can and I haven't mapped them out, mapped them out. So I left it up to you guys. This is a complete side tangent. My voice has been fine all day. <coughs> Genuinely. And you guys probably just heard my loud gulp of water on top of that massacre I just did to your ears. What the fuck is that? What? Not a fucking scratch in my throat all morning all afternoon it's now 6 p.m on tuesday evening i'm pausing it god fucking damn it and this is happening um if i didn't eat ice cream i'll tell you that i know we i joked about it on the last episode that makes my throat scratchy but it's just fucking is this the universe trying to tell me something uh am i not supposed to podcast what's going on why does this keep happening You're not going to get me, motherfucker. All right. So you guys voted on this out of the other options. And I loved all the options. I would have been glad with any of them because obviously I love them. That's why I made them episodes and found the people I wanted to interview. But what is, I don't know, serendipitous, I suppose, about you guys choosing this one and me putting it out as kind of the first episode coming into the new year is I didn't really set like resolutions for myself other than a couple like work project related things and then wanting to have my morning routine which includes all my fitness stuff down to a T which actually is a lot of goals but I don't know if I would consider those resolutions so much but I had been thinking the last two days you know what I want to be better at is just being in tune with the culture if that sounds I sound like an old person talking about black people (laughs) with the culture um I just mean in general like movies being played what the cool music is what everyone's listening to watching what's going on museums like cultured just all of it I want to be aware and more knowledgeable about cultural things in all aspects but probably more specifically the arts I guess if I'm being honest but history science all of it And what do you know, you guys voted for the episode featuring 
Jason Speck, excuse me, as I fucking stutter, trying to pretend I don't have to cough again. God damn it. Jason is a delightful gentleman, gentleman, wow, we are really losing it over here, who reached out to me via the survey I have up. It's in the Ignorance is Blessed Instagram page. Go follow that. And if you have a cool job, an interesting life story, a thing, you know, a thing people could, I could ask you about, you can fill out the survey to be a guest. And as you're all learning, I do get to the surveys. I do actually reach out to people if it seems like a good fit. So uh, he is the head of archives and special collections at a place called Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens. And it's a really cool place. I will be totally honest with you. Part of, uh, I think, the reason I made that uh, resolution or not, I didn't make it, but I had the thought about it is because of moments like this where he reached out. And I was like, man, that sounds like a cool job. I don't even know what the fuck that place is. I had never heard of this place. And that in itself is why we're here but don't worry we talk about it so I'm not going to do any big spoilers but it's a cool place uh that was <clears throat> the property of a really cool lady Marjorie Merriweather Post I'm so sorry for all the swallowing back cough sounds you guys are hearing I just want to get this done and that's that you, you know go ahead and skip ahead if you want to get past me saying this but by the way if you haven't skipped ahead Go ahead and pause this and go subscribe if you haven't subscribed and leave a rating and a review. It'll give a, give me them positive reviews. Listen, I have nothing to promise you guys, but if we can get our reviews up to 500, I don't know, something. I'll step it up. I'll do a giveaway of merch of some sort or I don't fucking know. I'll put out a, an extra bonus episode. I, I'll do a Q&A. I something I'm open to suggestions of what you guys think would move the needle on that because I would love to get some more reviews on there because I know you're out there I know you're listening I can see you I could see you in there on the analytics so I'm trying to make baby steps baby goals so please 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 go do that it just is so helpful and honestly it, it obviously it's nice to read a good review but more importantly seeing the number of ratings and reviews grow is information for me to go okay People are still enjoying this. They're still listening for sure. It's not just going out into the ether and people don't give a fuck. But for some reason, it's being downloaded somewhere. So I want to know that you are having fun with this and enjoying it. And it just helps. That helps me in the future. If I want to get advertisers, it looks good. The more money I make doing this, the more time I can dedicate to it. Yada, yada, yada. The less I'm scrambling, probably, and voting on the episode the night before. But, you know... Honestly, that might have just been a con point takeaway. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. That might make you not want to review it because you, maybe you like that shit. Anyway, he's really cool, and I'm not going to tell you about the space because we go into it in this podcast. And it's just a cool little chunk of history, a little cool spot, and uh, it's over on the East Coast, so if you do get a chance to see it, fucking tell us about it. Come over to the Facebook group if you're not already there and uh, join we have conversations about guests. I ask for questions ahead of time as much as I can. And uh, it's a cool place to just meet other fans of the pod. You know, little conversation space, uh, safe space for disagreement as long as everyone's respectful, which for the most part doesn't seem to be at all an issue. Uh, so that's that. I'm going to shut the fuck up because I want you guys to get into this episode. 
It's really interesting to me, and uh, I think you're gonna, I think you're gonna enjoy it. So enjoy this episode all about uh, the former or estate of Marjorie Mayweather. Po- Margie, I fucking can't say words. Marjorie, okay, to be fair, it is a mouthful. It's a fun name, but Marjorie Merriweather Post, it's like, listen, I'm about to say something hypocritical, extremely and very flagrantly and obviously hypocritical. Do we need all those names? (laughs) Three names. Isn't that a lot? I finally get what people are saying to me when they go, come on, all three. But anyway, Marjorie Merriweather Post, her former estate, the head of archives and special collections over there because it is now a museum. That's how fucking nice of a house it is. Uh, estate it is. Museum. Gardens. Uh, and on and on, etc., etc. So with no further ado, my delightful guest, Jason Speck. Hey, idiots. I am here with Jason Speck, head of archives and special collections at Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens. I'm very excited for this guest. I'm excited to ask you a million questions. Uh, first of all, just hi, Jason. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, of course, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, I, uh, As everyone listening has already heard me say a million times, I put out a form to find guests out in the world and you rose to the call and I am so thrilled to talk to you about this because I mean you you have a pretty cool job I have a very cool job yes that is Uh, correct I love that you say that because it's always just great to know I I don't know it's just it's great to love your job and so hearing someone who thinks their job is cool I don't know it's just refreshing in a world where so many people are doing jobs they hate well I spent 12 years doing jobs I hated before I found this. So Oh, I, I, really? Oh, yeah. What were yeah. you, uh, was it in the same lane or was this, was it this no. a total three, like 180? It was a complete different thing. I, I got a, an undergraduate degree in literature of all things, which, you know, immediately makes Big you employable money. in so many ways. <laughs> and um, had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, spent a number of years working um, in the medical field uh, for medical practice, doing a bunch of different things, billing and this and that. And then I worked for an insurance and investment company for about seven years, um, working on insurance licensing and all sorts of stuff. And I really got, I got, I was bored and I really didn't like helping people make money. It really didn't fulfill me on any level. Um, (laughs) And I, and so I was, I just wasn't, I just was sort of stumped and it was my wife who said, well, why don't you think about going back to school? And I found a library science program here in the DC area and signed up for an introduction to archives course in 30 minutes. in, I was like, yeah, this is it. Um, uh, how, I mean, how old were you when you went back to school? Uh, well, I'd been out of school for 12 years, so I was what, 33. Um, right. Yeah. So, and all, you know, and all the, all the people in my program were a good decade plus younger than me. So it was a, it was quite the experience. Oh, I'm sure a little bit of uh, humility there of like, well, I didn't, mm-hmm. you, <laughs> I feel like in my brain, I just like, well, you guys probably don't have it figured out either. You think this is what you want, but <laughs> um, man. And then, and then you stumbled upon this job. 
Yeah, well, I stumbled upon the field, really, you know, in, in terms of, field. yeah, the whole field. Like, um, yeah, archives. What does that even mean, by the way, for people listening, going who know like zero, have zero knowledge? Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, an archives is a place where you permanently store materials that you deem worthy of retention in perpetuity. And so that can be documents, it can be photographs, it can be audiovisual materials, um, it could be publications, it can be a lot of different things. And the, the job of the archivist is essentially to organize those materials and uh, make them accessible to the general public, to researchers, to anybody who wants to use them, and also to, to take care of them, to steward them and protect them so that when you inevitably hand them off to the next uh, archivist or, you know, that, that they are still in good condition and will last, you know, last the test of time or well outlast all of us anyway. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is so rad. It's so funny. I, I don't think I'd ever heard, I like could have assumed I guess that was a job, but I mm -hmm. actually just coincidentally happened to randomly hear of it in an audiobook I was reading very recently. Uh, it, it's just a, a historical fiction book called The Lost Apothecary for anyone who likes books. But uh, I've heard of that book. But it was like after you had submitted, and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. wow. This, it just sort of got my brain going even more about like what a cool job that sounds like, you know, especially anyone who loves history or mm -hmm. I imagine you know, yeah. uh, maybe art in this case. Well, well, I'd already had, I'd always had a lifelong interest in history and in books. And I discovered through the jobs that I didn't like that one of the things I liked doing was helping people find information or find the answers to questions that they had. And a lot of times in my job, it's about, you know, either finding an answer for somebody or connecting them with the information that they need in order to complete whatever project that might be. It could be a movie, it could be a book, it could be an article. Um, you know, all of those things. Um, whenever I pick up a history book, one of the first things I do is I always look and see what archives they've been to. Oh, wow. Uh, Did you always do that? Or is that now that you are in? Oh, it's definitely more now. Um, yeah. But, you know, if, if you're interested in history and you read about history, you, you sort of want to know, or at least I do, um, where did they get their source material from? You know, where yeah. did they? And uh, inevitably, they've been to uh, one or several archives in the course of doing whatever the project is. Wow. Are there any um cool projects that stick out that you, well, actually let's put a pin in that. And I want to come back to asking that question. Mm -hmm. um, Cause let's talk a little bit about uh, Hillwood. So okay. in terms of, you know, for anyone who maybe hasn't been there or isn't familiar, how would you describe like, what is Hillwood estate museum and gardens kind of like what, it, what is there? What's housed there? Okay. Um, well, the first thing I will say is, is when I told people I was working at Hillwood, and I've been there about four years now, uh, people would either go, oh, I love that place, or they'd go, where? Um, so it's so <laughs> no you've in either between. Heard, you've, yeah, you've either heard of it and you love it, or you've never heard of it before. Um, Hillwood is a, uh, exactly what it says, museum, estate, and gardens in the northwest uh, area of uh, Washington, D.C. It was the former home of a woman named Marjorie Merriweather Post. Um, her father, C.W. Post, um, created uh, the Post Cereal Company. So if you've ever heard of Grape Nuts, oh, um, yeah. that's his invention. Oh, man. So when he died in 1914, she was 27. She immediately became the wealthiest woman in America. Oh, yeah. She's and the heiress to Post. So basically. she was very involved in the running of the company at a time when women weren't even allowed to vote yet. 
Wow. Um, so, you know, she was very much, you know, uh, at the forefront in terms of the business. She helped uh, Post turn into General Foods. She helped them acquire Jell-O and Bird's Eye and, and other other uh, companies that, you know, that you've heard of. Um, she, Hillwood was the last home that she lived in. She purchased it in 1955. She lived there until she died in 1973. Uh during that time, she renovated the house, created number, a number of gardens. She also used it to house her collection of French and Russian art, uh, which we are very well known for. In fact, we have the largest collection of Imperial Russian art outside of Russia, okay. which, is what, which is what brings a lot of our visitors. Um, and so that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's what Hillwood is. Now, she had an agreement with the Smithsonian in the 1960s that it would become a Smithsonian Museum. Um, oh. But then after she passed away, the Smithsonian decided that it would be too expensive for them to operate. And so they turned it back to a foundation that she had set up. And that same foundation runs Hillwood today. Okay. So it's uh, it was planned ahead of her passing that she's like, this will become some type of museum and the art will become just sort of for people mm -hmm. to come and see. Yeah. She, she, I guess the more she became known for her art collection, the more people sort of said to her, Hey, you know, you really should think about, you know, leaving behind a museum, which is something a lot of wealthy 20th century Americans ended up doing in one way, shape or form. There are several of these kinds of institutions across the country. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's it's a museum, but she also wanted to leave the house um, the way that it was when she passed away, so people could see what you know her lifestyle was like. Uh, you know, at that particular point in time, you know, she spent that latter par latter part of her life being one of the main sort of entertainment hostesses in D.C. So she would have ambassadors and diplomats and all sorts of Supreme Court judges and all sorts of people over for dinners and all of those kinds of things. So she was very much at the center of DC's social scene during that time wow. uh, as well. Um, and she, you know, and, and she was also involved in a lot of philanthropic causes, supporting the National Symphony Orchestra, you know, donating to the creation of the Kennedy Center, things like that. Yeah, that's what I, I read that she like made a lot of donations to help um the arts and some other organizations, which is mm -hmm. just really cool. Uh, and it's, it, it's really, it's an interesting way to see someone who was extremely wealthy at the time. I'm sure she would have been extremely wealthy at this time, but like, Oh yeah. How they leave their legacy behind. That's mm -hmm. a, it's a very interesting, I don't know, just a cool little thing. Um, in terms of being, uh, the arch archivist head mm -hmm. of archives, I guess, I don't know how to, did I say that right? Archivist. Yeah. You've got it. You nailed yeah. it. Yeah. Look at me learning. Um over there. Uh mm -hmm. how how much of uh do you have any involvement in bringing in the new collections or like uh acquiring any new pieces or do you guys how much of that did they even do over there? Or is it sort of like this is what's here, that's it. You know, we bring in uh new collections of materials. Um it can happen at any time. Um, it's going to be a donation or a gift most likely from, it could be an extended family member. It could be someone who knew someone who knew her. Um, a couple of years ago, I got a, a, a collection of materials from a woman who was handling some, someone else's estate. And it oh. turned out that the woman whose estate she was handling was once very good friends with Marjorie Post's granddaughter. Oh. Um, 
And so she turned over to us a bunch of letters back and forth between this person who was a young woman at the time and Marjorie. And uh, because she was Marjorie's granddaughter's friend, Marjorie basically adopted her as one of her own. And oh. so she would write her, she would give her advice, she would take her on vacations um, oh, and all so this cool. kind of stuff. And it was sort of one of those things that sort of showed a side of Marjorie Post that a lot of people never got to see. Um, you know, that if she, you know, she took a shine to you or if she liked you, then she, you know, she looked out for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, at one point, I guess this young lady was thinking about joining the LBGA golf tour. And so um, Marjorie, at the behest of one of her friends, sort of basically did some research behind the scenes to see whether or not that was a good idea and then advised her, you know, hey, maybe this is you know, if you're going to do this, this is what it's going to take. And maybe that's not the right thing for you. And so it was just great to have this, you know, this, this, um, this donation, which covered this entire relationship that we had nothing on before. Yeah. It just like opened a whole different door Mm -hmm. Yeah, and got to see a different side of this person that, you know, people have only known for, you know, yeah, collection and being a sort of socialite hostess mm-hmm. among the DC scene. And then you see this sort of nurturing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Re- Do you guys ever get donations like that, that you're like, yeah, we don't need that. <laughs> um, Yeah. Well, I mean that, you know, one of the, one of the myths about archives is that we keep everything right. Yeah. Um, Archives. I, I didn't know that actually. So that is we, good to know. We, we keep very little of what is produced, whether it's by our institution or, or what have you. Um, you know, the sheer volume of, of information and things that human beings produce is way more than all the archives in the world could store. And so, you know, as a result, you're very, very um, selective about what you keep because whatever you keep, you have to keep, you know, forever. forever and you only yeah. have so much space and all of that. And so, um, you know, we have what's called a collection development policy, which dictates the things that we are interested in and the things that we are trying to collect. Um, it also enumerates the things we are not interested in and we do not want to collect. Mm. So there are times when we will be offered something and I will say, and I will politely say, no, that's, you know, that's not appropriate for us. If I know of an institution where it is appropriate, I'll say, why don't you contact these folks? Um, then there are times when we just get a grouping of materials from someone and we will go through it um, and we will do what's called an appraisal process. And we'll look at all of the things in the donation and decide, okay, this is appropriate for us. And this isn't, um, and you know, the stuff that isn't, um, you know, may sometimes get recycled depending on, uh, on what it is. Oh, wow. So. And what kind of a, what is that process of, you know, uh, what are some of the things you look for to determine if it is something when you're appraising? Like, cause I imagine there are some things that it's kind of like you're on the fence about like, may- maybe this could yeah. fit in here. So how do you sort of figure out what actually really does or. Yeah. Well, your collection development policy really helps in that respect because, you know, for us, you know, when, you know, if, if I'm talking about our library collections, for example, you know, one of the things our collection development policy says is that we collect books that relate to 18th century French decorative arts and Imperial Russian arts and things like that. So that helps us decide when somebody offers us a book, if you're offering me a book that's say from the Soviet era, well, that's outside of what we collect and I'm going to say no. Yeah. Um, Okay. You know, something like that. Now, when it comes to archival materials, we have a principle that we call uh, enduring value. 
um, does this item have enduring value? And enduring value, I won't get into the weeds of it, but it has a number yeah. of subcategories. I'm sure. You know, does this have historical value? Does this have administrative value? Um, you know, there's several different criteria that you use to determine whether or not this is something that you're going to retain. Mm. Um, so it's so it's very um, it's a it's a it's a very sort of um, delineated step by step decision making process. Um, you know, the idea is not to is to make decisions based on you know, our professional standards and not just what we feel like, or, you the know, gut instinct, like, yeah. you know, or, or, Oh, that looks cool. I want to keep it. Well, it may be cool, but it may not, it may not be something that you should have in the archives. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, so that's a lot of it. I mean, it, you know, one of the other things that often happens in, in my line of work is people think about, Oh, they go, Oh, archiving. I, I, I know about that. Cause I archive my computer files and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the, the difference there of course is, you know, when you're archiving your computer file, you're like, Oh, I'm just going to stick it in this folder in case I need it later. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're, if you're working in an archives, you have to know exactly where you put it. You have to know exactly what you called it so you can find it again and that you can be able to, you know, connect it to people who need to use it and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a lot of sort of, um, decision making that takes place every single day uh, with the materials that you look at. And after a while, obviously, the more you do it, the more you sort of have a sense of these things. But um, yeah. there are definite guidelines as to what you keep and why. Wow. Uh, on the on the system of archiving and, you know, having to remember things. Is there similar to how like with just regular library books have like the Dewey Decimal System? Is there a standard? archivist or is it kind of like every different place has their own system and you just have to be able to like, um, pass that on to whoever comes it's in after you? you know there there are some there are some sort of basics that are true across archives um you know everybody has a sort of similar um location system or organizational system it's not as uniform as say dewey decimal or in our case our, our library we use the library of congress call number system so um, that's fairly uniform and, you know, most, li you know, libraries, you know, all across, you know, the country do that. Um, archives, it's a, it's, it can be a little bit different. Um, there are different types of uh, software packages that you can use to keep track of, you know, where things are and, um, you know, you can, you know, each archives might label a collection slightly differently, but it all works on the same general principle, which is you have to, you have to know what you've called it. You have to know where you put it. You have to be able to retrieve it at a moment's notice and you should have, and, and it should be described enough so that you know what reasonably what that collection contains and what it might be good for. Okay. Have you ever lost anything? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, Comes with it's the territory. An, yeah, I mean it's I mean it's an archivist nightmare. Um, you know, you can't uh I mean it, it I mean it just happens from time to time. Yeah. Um, cuz it's like you can never I mean I imagine there's so many things you have to sift through that like the uh, the odds I mean the ability to remember the title of every single thing it's going to get mixed up sometimes. I mean it's it's more it's more like you don't you don't necessarily lose something but you misplace it for yeah. an extended period of time. Yeah, they're like well I know I did um, put it somewhere. It is right. in fact here. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in a in a previous archives gig, I know we had a we had a box of photographs, 
and we lost them and it, for three years we didn't know where they were <gasps> and then one day one of the students was going through a range of shelving and she pulled this box off the shelf that didn't have quite the right label and she's like what's this and she opened it up and there were all the photographs That's that everybody so had been looking for for three years so um you know, it, it does happen, but we try really, really hard for it not to because there's nothing that makes an archivist more unhappy than not being able to find something. Finds them, especially when you know you have it. I mean, yes. I'm just going to start referring to myself as an archivist in my own home because of the, <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that feeling. Um, have there been, have there ever been things that come through that like aren't a good fit, but you're like, damn, this is really cool. I wish it was, or does anything stick out like that? Um, not off the top of my head, but it definitely happens. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, sometimes you can, you can see something and go, oh, that's cool, but that's definitely not for us. And, and as I said, you, you know, if it's, if it's a decent grouping of material or if it's a donation you've been offered, you try to contact another institution and say, Hey, we have this donor contact us and they have, you know, something, that's well outside our collecting policy, but I happen to notice online that you guys collect this stuff. So is this something that you guys want? Um, you know, so that, that happens more often than not. What it is though, is that there will be something small in a collection that they gave us that um, isn't really something we want. Um, and in that case, we might try to offer it back to them okay. to say, Hey, you know, we, we don't really want this particular thing. Do you want it back? Um, sometimes, you know, the donor may be deceased and that's not possible. And, and so, um, you know, it, you just, I mean, you don't, you don't keep it. Um, yeah. and there may or may not be a, a good way to, you know, handle it. Or what often happens too, is you'll be given something and you'll not only find an institution that collects that particular thing, but they already have it. Oh, then, wow. Okay. And you know, and like... then, and then, you know, you just, you just, dis you dispose of it because it's, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to take it and nobody else is going to take it. So yeah. You know, so you're like, there there's you no go. point. Do people ever right. try to basically you use you guys as like a, like a junk drop-off service? But like a warehouse? Taking... Yeah, yeah. That they're like, oh yeah, this is really cool stuff. And it's, it's, like, it's not. <laughs> it is, it is something that every archives tries to avoid um, people who want to basically leave things with you either on deposit or on loan or something like that. Um, and that you don't really want that to happen because ultimately you're liable for whatever happens to that stuff while you have it. Um, so generally speaking, you, you would want some kind of agreement in place to say, okay, you know, we're taking this with the idea that eventually it's going to be donated to us. But, you know, sometimes there can be political reasons where you're not, you're not offered that choice, you know? Yeah, so like, no, we have to take yeah. So, I mean, you know, I worked at a big university prior to this and, you know, we could get things for the university archives that, you know, say the president of the university said, I've already agreed we're accepting this. And you're like, uh, okay. You're like, all right. You know, so well, it's just, it'll you just, go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, it does, it does happen. You try to avoid it, but it does happen. Um, wow. That's, I mean, that's so, it's just interesting. It, uh, if someone had something that they thought could belong in a museum, if, mm -hmm. like do most museums like on their website have something that says how to do that? Or like, how would someone contact like an archivist or the right person? Um, You know, it, it's generally speaking, I, I mean, I get requests through our visitor services people 
Okay. Um, who who basically monitor just the general Hillwood contact website. I mean, we do have our own web page within the website. Sometimes people drill down to that and they might reach out. Um, you know, sometimes they'll look for, you know, they'll try to see, okay, who's the archivist there or who's a curator there that I can, that I can approach. Um, you know, sometimes we have events uh, where, you know, somebody who's attending an event will just come up to me and say, hey, I have such and such, you know, is that something you'd be interested in? Oh, wow. Yeah. So it happens. I mean, it happens. It happens a lot. Um, and, you know, like I said, sometimes you say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And other times, well, no, unfortunately, that's really not, you know, so you, you learn to be very diplomatic about about that kind of stuff, because it obviously it matters to them. And yeah, and if, if they think it needs to be a museum, they probably right. think it's special. So, yeah, yeah, they've got a connection to it. And um or sometimes, sometimes you know, a loved one of theirs has passed on, and they're they're stuck with this historical thing, and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. So yeah. maybe maybe a museum wants it, and then so in that case, you know, again, if we're not going to say yes, we could say, well, here are your options. You know, yeah. if you want to keep it, if you want to sell it, you know, that those kinds of things. Um, yeah. Wow, what a great job to just train someone in the art of gracefully saying no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that's. Uh, that's so funny. Do you ever, have you ever gotten any, uh, fakes? Have you ever like caught any no. stuff? Um, well, I, I, in my line of work, I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about that. Um, you know, uh, cause I'm far away from the art part of it. Right. Ah, uh, that's, true. um, you know, the archives that I'm responsible for basically cover three different areas, the life of Marjorie post and okay. her immediate family. Uh, the history of Hillwood as a museum, and then the history of Hillwood as a property. Okay. So, so those so you are the kind of you're focused there. I should yeah. Ask so that I'm I'm, I'm, fo <laughs> I'm focused there. Um, our library collections have a lot to do and reflect a lot the art collections that we have because it supports research into those into the collection. Um, and obviously, in the archival uh, collections, we have lots of correspondence and other things that document, you know, how she how she, you know, went about certain things, how she went about collecting something or how she went about renovating one of her properties and, you know, all those, all those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I'm not likely to come across a fake in, in, in that, but, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it does happen. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, I mean, it would be kind of sort of silly for someone to be like my fake letters from but people are crazy. Uh, have you ever received something under that umbrella, maybe about like Marjorie's life or about the estate that uh, created like a big shift in what you guys had previously thought of that maybe like dispelled what you thought was a fact about her life or changed uh, something in a big way? You know, not, not really. I mean, there are, there are occasionally little things you find, um, either in the archives or, or somewhere else that will um, maybe clue you into something that you didn't necessarily weren't clue, clear on before. Um, yeah. In fact, we were, we were talking just today. Um, we're getting ready to do an exhibition on uh, Marjorie Post yacht, um, which was called the sea cloud, which at the time that she bought it with her husband, it was the largest private yacht in the world. Wow. And in World War II, it was turned over to the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard used it to patrol the shoreline and the east on the eastern seaboard. And during that time, they had the first African-American to ever serve in the Coast Guard served aboard that ship. Whoa. 
And so uh, we're going to be doing an exhibition on it in a couple of years. And the curator who's doing the research mentioned that he found in the Coast Guard archives a letter from Marjorie to that individual saying, hey, you know, here's here's a picture of the sea cloud, you know, before wartime. I thought you'd really I thought you'd really like to have this. Wow. So, so we didn't know that she she had been in contact with with that individual and literally until just very recently. Um, oh, that's so interesting because it. I mean, it just makes me wonder. I mean, I guess at the time, I wonder if it was also, you know, it obviously is a big deal, but you just think in war times, like are people hearing about these, you know, big deals in terms of, you know, you know, wins for diversity and, uh, mm-hmm. uh well, I suspect, I suspect they probably did if, if only because they were so few and far between during that period of time that they really would have, they really would have stood out. Yeah. It would have been um, a big piece of information. And also her being, you know, a woman in the world where in a world right. where there really aren't a lot of women and there's maybe she felt some like a, you know, kinship of, hey. mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, one of the things that we've we've done a lot of research on uh, since I've been here, because this becomes this is a big topic amongst museums um, and public institutions in general. Were you know what were her views on race? What were her you know how did she um, you know what do we have that documents that um, you know that kind of thing? Um, you know she did it, that she had African Americans on her staff during her time at Hillwood, um, who spoke very highly of her. Um, you know, so we have we have that perspective. Um, you know, we don't have a ton of information about it. Um, yeah. You know, I think because of what was chosen to be collected at the time. You know, I mean, as an archivist, you're stuck dealing with the records that somebody else chose to keep. You know, fifty yeah. years ago or a hundred years ago, or so who or knows what they just got rid of. So you know? right. So who knows now? Um, you know, and I and I discovered in an oral history for. Um, a college that that she went to that she was adamant that uh that it desegregate um you know that was according to the the gentleman who was president there at the time so she definitely she definitely had some um connection to it um and a history of sort of you know yeah so it, it um but i also think that you know you could you if you're somebody of her wealth and status you know, those kinds of questions probably don't even make it to your level because you're just traveling in a sphere that the rest of us can't even comprehend. Yeah. I mean, that level of wealth at that time, it's just, yeah, that's, you have someone else has someone else who has handled that for you, you know? Right. And so many instances. So if I, I mean, I imagine finding that letter is such a big deal because it's like just one little nugget of Mm -hmm. just physical, like, oh, well, here she is not being an awful person so that's something huh <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's it's um you know if there's if there's um you know if she has a she has a a very or had a very wide reputation as being you know very kind and very gracious and and uh an excellent hostess and you know of course i mentioned you know she she sort of would adopt people and take care of them sort of like behind the scenes and you know, lots of, you know, she, um, one of my favorite discoveries is, um, she had a friend who, um, lived in England during World War II. And 
after World War II ended, Britain suffered a lot of, you know, economic depression and privations because they just, they'd been devastated by the war. And so Marjorie used to send this woman fruit and she'd send her stockings and all the things that she couldn't get in England because they just weren't available. Wow. And so she would send her these care packages. And then at one point, um, you know, because her friend's car was basically about shot, um, she surprised her. And and, uh, one day a man showed up at the door and said, you know, here's a booklet of new automobiles. You know, Mrs. Post said, pick out the one you want and it's yours. Wow. So. A, what a good friend. B, what a wild amount of money to have. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, you know, at the same time that she owns the largest private yacht in the world, she's paying for, you know, she paid for an entire field hospital in France during World War One. Um, she paid for a soup kitchen, which fed thousands of people in New in in New York City during the Great Depression. Um, you know, she she bought um, campsites, a campsite for the Boy Scouts. You know, she, I mean, it, wow. you know, she really, she really tried to make, um, you know, her charitable endeavors af- affect as many people as possible. I love that. Um, it also like, you know, it's just, well, we're actually, I want to keep talking about this, but we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back. Okay. We're back. Um, and we were just talking about, uh, Marjorie's incredible charitable endeavors. And it's just like, nice to see that light shined. You know, I don't know. I think people have these, uh, you know, this made up cartoonish, cartoonish perception of the wealthy sometimes that they just go, who knows, you know, we, make them evil characters in our head uh but uh, you know uh, well i think you know sometimes it's deserved well yeah Um, yeah, exactly you know but i will say you know i mean you have to look at i mean you know put yourself in her shoes you know in 1914 she's 27 years old her father dies suddenly and there she is with all of this wealth and responsibility for helping run this this you know multi million dollar business enterprise. Yeah. And you know what would you do? What would you do if you were twenty seven and all of a sudden you had all this responsibility and yet the money to do things that gave you a freedom that you know it, almost uh, no one else had. Yeah. That it's. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's, you know, it's funny to me because I think about, you know, there are, there are like documentaries that talk about how lottery winners like go, go bankrupt and they Don't lose all quickly. their money. <laughs> right. And, 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 and here was a woman who basically took, you know, I mean, she would have really tried to try hard to go bankrupt, but I mean, she took money and she, you know, she created, helped create General Foods out of the Post Cereal Company and, you know, for the foresight to purchase Jello and, bird's eye and Maxwell house coffee and all those kinds of things. And yeah, and was, and, and also was making sure that she had money going to, you know, all these different charitable endeavors. Um, so she really, you know, she really kept a very, um, a very strong head on her shoulders. And I think part of that was due to her father because when she, you know, when she first got married and he, um, you know, gave her this lovely house in Connecticut, um, he basically said, you have to run the house. The whole, the running of the household is your job and you have to balance the checkbook down to the penny. Oh, wow. And, and so she, you know, she, you know, she was, it wasn't, you know, when she had that first house, she didn't just turn the running of the house over to a bunch of other people. She did it herself. She did it herself. 
Um, and so even, you know, throughout the rest of her life, you know, she did have tons of people to do tons of things for her, but she was still very involved on a day-to-day, you know, basis. And I think it kept her, for the most part, kept her grounded um, and kept her from doing a lot of the crazy things that you see wealthy people do with oh, their Oh, yeah. Well, as, especially just someone getting that that much power and responsibility at such a young age, if they don't have the right sort of, you know, foundation yeah, could go way off the handle where it's like, I imagine maintaining that responsibility and really, you know, taking it on yourself sort of, yeah, it grounds you because you could, boy, can you get really out of touch as we've sometimes seen mm-hmm. with some people who come into money very quickly or grow up, you know, right, young you know, mm-hmm. pop stars, TV stars, whatever, just not know how to be a human uh, in a, yeah in a good way, yeah. just sort of self-destruct often, or it just yeah, manifests. Ine- in- yeah. Inevitably that, that kind of, that kind of wealth changes you, whether you want it to or not, it, it yeah. does. And, you know, I think her father was looking ahead because, you know, even as a, even as a child, he would take her along to business meetings and he would, you know, show her what he was doing in terms of running the business. He didn't want her to be dependent on a man or somebody else to show her how, how the world worked. Um, I love that. And I love also him just creating that sort of, uh, yeah, from a young age, starting her off being like, don't just like you. I I can imagine if you have that much money, like I don't want my kid to be one of those weird rich kids who is, has no drive and is a shitty kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Sorry. I jumped in on you. No, no. Um, Okay. I, have what might be a confession or what might be a pretty standard. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of her until you reached out. I, I'm one of the, Oh, what's that? When it comes to right. the Hill Estates. Mm-hmm. That's, That's not unusual. Yeah. I like, do you have any guesses as to why she's lesser known? Is it, I mean, I don't know if it's just cause she's, you know, a woman or why I there hasn't that's... been more to hear it. Like I, I would think her story would have been told more in bigger ways by now. Uh, you know, I think being a woman is, is, has got to be part of it. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, the vein of history that I've, I've particularly gotten into and enjoy are all the stories that are coming out now about all these amazing women who did amazing things that nobody ever paid attention or gave them any kind of credit. Yeah. Um, you know, there was one in the New York Times just today about a, a woman who was who was right there with Oppenheimer in terms of the creation of the atomic bomb. And, you know, she, and she was, you know, she was right next to somebody who got a Nobel Prize for chemistry, but she didn't get it. And, uh. you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that those stories are, are unfortunately legion. They're out there. They're everywhere. So I think part of it is part of it is being a woman. I think part of it, too, is, um, you know, her life. Um, particularly in DC was, you know, the way she was sort of looked at through her whole life um, was just sort of seen as, oh, she's a socialite and, and, and a, and a, you know, a hostess. People reduced um, it to like, she has parties. Yeah. And I think that just sort of, you know, that, that had a certain cachet, you know, in the 20th century. I mean, she was one of a number of wealthy women who, either were you know, who were well known on the DC social scene um you know who were involved in that and that could be a full-time thing in and of itself oh yeah um but you know she was you know i think oftentimes women were reduced 
to that. And then, of course, when that falls out of favor and people don't throw those kind of parties anymore, then, you know, we might look down our nose and go, ugh, you know, like yeah. that just sounds that just, you know, whatever. Um, so I think there's I think there's a couple reasons for it. I also think that she wasn't particularly flashy in terms of her philanthropy and things like that. Yeah, she didn't need everyone um, to see it and know that yeah. she the person yeah. who's like loudly donating to something just look over here i'm helping right i think i mean i think maybe if the smithsonian had kept hillwood maybe maybe the profile might be a little higher um yeah. but you know it it's not um it's it doesn't surprise me unfortunately yeah uh me neither unfortunately uh have there been since you've been there and it's also maybe there have been projects i'm just unaware of Mm -hmm. where they have tried to tell her story. Has anyone reached out for any materials of like trying to maybe tell her life story since you've been there? Um, well, there was, there was a, I mean, there was a biography produced of her in the 1990s called okay. American Empress, um, okay. which is out there for, for, uh, for anyone who's interested. I'm yeah. sure you can get a, a nice secondhand copy online for not, not too much money. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I'm interested. And, <laughs> And everybody, and you know, and and every now and again, you know, uh, a TV, um, you know, we might somebody might reach out to us about some project where they want to cover her, um, you know. But it's, you know, right now one of the big things that um, we get reached out about a lot is is Mar-a-Lago, because that's right because she, she owned she it. She built right? it. She she oh, built it she from the ground it. up. Yep. Yeah. And I mean that yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Is there I imagine there was someone between her and the Trump family before Well, there was well, the basically what yes, there there was in a way. Um one of the things that Marjorie Post tried to do with all of her properties was to give them to the public when she died. Um, and so, uh, wow. she tried to give Mar-a-Lago to the state of Florida, um, uh, to the national park service, um, because she had a hope that it would become the winter white house, you know, put a pin in that for later. Oh, um, oh God. <laughs> but then, but the, you know, but, but the national park service didn't want to operate it cause it was too expensive and, you know, the state of Florida didn't want anything to do with it. And so when she died in 1973, it basically sat there un. You know, just sort of, and and uh, it didn't get sold for until the 1980s when when Trump bought it. Um, but at that time, you know, it had been sitting for for a long time. Um, and of course, and there had been several attempts to sell it and several sales that almost went through. Um, but you know, the you know she, you know, where she built Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, she was part of the group that sort of you know, created Palm Beach as sort of a big social scene in the 1920s. Yeah. Um, and so by the time that she had passed away, that was an enclave for extremely wealthy people. And as you might imagine, extremely wealthy people did not want a museum opening right next door. They did not want to deal with the extra traffic. Yeah. They did, they did not want it to be a winter White House. They, you know, they didn't they want, want the peace. They, they basically didn't want anybody to have it, essentially. Yeah. And I think they got in the way of a number of, of deals that could have gone through. And then as a result, they of, regret that. Well, you know, I, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think their fate, you know, they, they deserved what they got ultimately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they got know. the traffic anyway. So, yeah, I mean, it, um, so it, it, that's, 
Yeah, that's sort of the and so so as you might so you might imagine that you know people um you know people reach out a lot you know asking questions about that and it's um I mean it's like apples and oranges I mean you know she owned it during a very different period of time and used it very differently and you know it's, it's a wild it's, coincidence um, of someone with money buying a an expensive property basically. Yeah. And so it's just, um, you know, just, just one of those things that happens with, a, you know, every property has its own history. Yeah. I mean, what a wild history that place has. Talk, talk about, I mean, if these walls could talk also just the yeah sort of odd coincidental, I don't know if it's irony of wanting it to be the winter white house and then having a president who basically for his term seemed to make it mostly the white house. Yeah. Kind uh, of. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I I somehow don't imagine that that uh, that she would be pleased. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> with I, what has transpired. Um, if there was anything like, that she she didn't care for, it was unnecessary publicity. Yeah, uh, which also yeah, she, may explain part of the reason that some people haven't, you know, heard her story. But... Yeah, no, that, that that no, that's absolutely true. I mean, she she was very. Um, careful about her public image and um she you know did not believe in you know making a big splash and being the center of attention and all that kind of stuff so <laughs> what a difference in the owners of that home uh, mm -hmm. night and day in that way for sure that's i mean that's so funny have there been any um projects or people have come to you for certain pieces for something they're working on where it was sort of a unique take that stuck out to you or like a, a unique project that you um, found extra cool or felt like you were able to be really helpful for? You know, there, there's, I mean, there, there are, there are a lot of projects that, that, you know, I mean, we're, we're approached all the time for various, you know, various books and, um, you know, TV shows and, 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 and things like that. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I, if one necessarily stands out to me, um, you know, I know we were, you know, we helped work on a book that, uh, was published a few years ago about, um, the famous homes of, 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 you know, Palm beach. Um, and it really is, and it, and it, it really is sort of a who's who of, of who had enormous wealth in that period of time <laughs> when there was a real estate boom in Florida and, and they created these just incredibly lavish, incredibly elaborate um, homes to live in that just, you know, again, just boggle the mind. Did people still live in the, some of those homes today? Um, you know, so it, a lot of times you, you know, there are a number of projects where you get involved in, in something like that and you just, you know, it, it blows you away to realize this was some people's reality. I mean, this 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 isn't the fantasy. This people actually lived in these houses, and people actually did all these things. Yeah, they like this was not a museum for her. This was a home. Like that's, mm -hmm. yeah. The, I mean, the the lavishness of that level of wealth is so beyond comprehension. I think for most of us, you know, it just exists in a fantasy, and it, it would be weird to find yourself in. I mean, obviously, we're all kind of like, well, I wouldn't be opposed to it, you know, but yeah. like. But it's just such yeah. a, it's a whole different world. Um, does it, uh, is it cool every time that you get to like help someone find the right thing they need for their project or the thing they're working on? Does that feel awesome? Yes. Yeah. You're just yes, saying. it does. Especially when, especially when 
um, you maybe they didn't expect to find it or you find something they didn't expect, you know, that they asked for, oh, wow. um, you know, I mean, because sometimes, you know, sometimes it helps somebody with a project, but sometimes the thing you find can be very personal to someone. Um, so, you know, going back to my university job, I was contacted one day by a woman who was looking for a picture of her grandfather. Um, she'd never seen a picture of him. He had died young and her mother and her mother's siblings, when he died, were all split up and sent to different families. And it was this terrible tragedy for the family. And she was trying to basically piece her family history back together and said, you know, do you happen to have, um, a, a picture of my my grandfather because he he went to grad school you know at your at the university and I did some digging and I couldn't find a picture what I did find was he was uh, along with his professor they had patented a way to make chocolate milk um, which <gasps> That's so was cool which was very cool um, but I also figured out where he did his undergrad. And so then I went to the archives of, I went to the archivist at the undergrad institution and I said, do you happen to have a picture of this guy? And they did. And so I got the picture and I sent it to this woman and I got a letter back and she was like, you have no idea what this means to my family. I'm crying as I write this letter to you. Like she was really like, it was really an emotional. Oh yeah. To have never seen him and get to see. thing. Yeah. To, to have never seen a, a picture of, of him and, you know, so to be able to connect somebody to that. I mean, is that's an, magical. Yeah, it's an incredibly, you know, rewarding experience. Um, and so, you know, that doesn't happen every day, um, obviously. But, you know, when it when it does happen, you know, it, it feels mean, really so great cool. to connect people to to something that means that much to them. Did you tell her about the chocolate milk, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I also imagine something like that could be a cool because, like, now you're gonna think different. Like, you'll if you drink chocolate milk, you'll be like, I don't know. I would just think of it differently. Like, oh, cool, he did something. Yeah. you know. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, when you find something like that, you know, it ends up on your social media, and you use it in, you know, when you're talking about, you know, various topics and whatever. Did you know we had somebody who had a patent for making chocolate milk? Like, oh, that, I mean, yeah, that becomes your family you, story. <laughs> You literally milk that forever. Um, <laughs> I'm milking it for all it's worth. Exactly. Because it's, a, you know, it's such a cool thing. You it's know? so when, unique and cool. Yeah. And yeah. you just go, oh, I, it's so fun hearing that, you know, learning the tiny, not tiny, but just unique things that your ancestors did. What a, um, just what a cool thing. On the note yeah. of you don't get to do that every day. What kind of is like, a basic day in the life of an archivist. <laughs> well, there. The, one of the things that we love to say is no two days are ever the same, ah, and and we like it um, because you know a lot. Uh, you know it. I don't know from day to day what information needs are going to come across my desk. Yeah. Um, I don't know who's going to ask me for help. It could be. Um, it could be our marketing department. It could be visitor services. It could be somebody in my own division in collections. It could, I mean, it could be somebody from outside. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, yeah. these questions come at you out of the blue 
and you have no idea what they're going to be or how easy or complicated they're going to be or how urgent they're going to be. And so you do a lot of, um, you know, face-to-face -face or online, you know, customer service type stuff, responding to people and helping people. And then, you know, when you're not busy doing that, then you try to do all the other parts of your job that people don't necessarily know about. <laughs> um, so it really, it really isn't the same. And if I had a nickel for every time I made a plan, <laughs> and walked in the office and it was completely blown out of the water immediately. Yeah. But that's, you know, y you have to learn to be flexible. Yeah. It's probably kind of the um, fun of it too. Is that like it's and, an adventure uh, every day? Well, sure. I mean, if you take it, I mean, I always, you know, I always love a challenge of finding something, particularly if you tell me that nobody's found it or it can't be found. Yeah. I was going to um, ask, I bet that's even more, when it is a little more challenging, that's kind of fun. Cause you're like, now we get to really like uncover this thing. Yeah. Now, now I really get to dig and I get to use all of the, you know, you, you, you learn to look at problems or requests from multiple angles. Mm. Um, so, you know, if somebody's looking for a particular, um, if they're looking for a particular person, say, and that person has a job title. Well, 50 years ago, that job might not be called what it's called today. So you have to know what the job was called 50 years ago. Oh, Wow. So a lot of times, a lot of times there's, you know, there's vocabulary and like the vocabulary can change based on the time period you're looking at. Oh. So it, um, you know, there's, a, there's all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, I mean, if I'm looking for something in, in a newspaper archives about Marjorie Post, you know, and I know we call this particular building at Hillwood, you know, by this name, well, in 1955, it wasn't called that. It was called something else. Yeah. So and it's if just I, like, yeah. So you, you, there's all, there's, there's lots of, um, lots of little pieces like that that you sort of have to, you know, remind yourself of and, and put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was doing the, you know, somebody who would have been alive back then. Back you then, know? like what were they, how would they have archived this or how would they have, yeah. what would they have called this? How would they have referred that's to cool. this? What would this have been called? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's fun to get to kind of put yourself in the, the, the shoes of someone, you know, in the fifties mm -hmm. or like, what would they be doing in this building right now? Um, yeah. What would it have looked like then? That's, that's just awesome. Yeah. And sometimes you come across descriptions you've never seen before. Wow. And you're like, what? In Ever. Like, I mean, one that always sticks with me is um, in the, in the thirties and forties and fifties, you know, students used to refer to the, to the university president as they use the word Prexy, P-R-E-X-Y, and that wow. somehow stood for president. Now, I'd never heard that that word before, but I started coming across it in the student newspapers, and that's the language they used during that period. So I learned if I wanted to find something in the student newspaper, that was the word I needed to use. Wow. And that's just, I'm sure you've picked up so many of those. And there's probably ones you don't even realize. You're like, oh, yeah, that's... I picked that up, but I just know it now. It's right. it becomes common knowledge. Have you mm -hmm. ever told someone you're an archivist and they confuse it with archaeologist? No, but I have so told people I'm an archivist and I just get this blank look like, what is that? Um, <laughs> you know, and it's it, it's not something that, you know, I think every archivist, if 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 you talk to an archivist and they tell you they don't have a 30 second elevator speech trying to explain what they do for a living, they're lying to you <laughs> because all of us face that, you know, well, it's a cross between a librarian and a historian. And, you know, you just try to sort of fumble your way through a, through a thing. But, um, 
you know, a lot of people don't know what it know what we do. A lot of people don't know about archives. Um, you know, this became very obvious to me when the economy crashed in the late 2000s. Yeah. And That's when I graduated you know, and places were in cities and, and communities were closing libraries and closing archives because they said these are we don't need we shouldn't be spending money on these That's you know sad. these these are not places that you know we you know they don't have value and you know for somebody in my line of work it sort of made it very crystal clear to me that we need to do a lot better job of explaining who we are and why what we does matter because if we don't you know this is going to be this People is going to be what happens to us and so you know, from that day on, I've never, I've never turned down an opportunity to talk about what we do and how we do it. And, you know, all of that, because, um, you know, we're, we're dependent on, uh, you know, people to understand what we do and, and, and see that it has value in, in order for us to be able to have careers. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you know, the rest of us are dependent on people being aware of that so that we can have these places to go to mm -hmm. find these you know, this cool information, these cool pieces of history. Uh, since you made your career pivot when you went back to school and like started, you know, being, you know, involved in archives, has it changed the way you think about um, your own family story or family legacy and how you want to, I don't know, either catalog that or things that mm -hmm. you think are really important to like information wise to pass on to loved ones. It certainly has um, given me a desire to want to do something to be remembered. Um, you know, because uh, you know, stuff just disappears in the midst of time. It's sort of inevitable. And um, you know, so for me it was, okay, what are the things that I can do um, you know, so I got, you know, I've, I've written or co-written a couple of books and, you know, so I know my name will be in the library of Congress and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, just trying to, so, so from that perspective, I've thought about it. Um, I have a, I have an aunt on my mother's side of the family who has done extensive genealogy work. So she's sort of got that covered. Oh, that's um, nice. It's always nice to have a relative who's like, oh, I went way back. Yeah. And and genealogists actually are, are the predominant users of archives now. Oh, uh, wow. Because, that, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Because there are so many people, you know, basically mining archives for information about their um, about their family members. And if, you know, if you if you go on Ancestry.com, what Ancestry.com is, is essentially a gathering place for a lot of archives. So when you're searching Ancestry, you're searching, you know, the National Archives, you know, and 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 other other, uh, you know, sources that they have. Yeah, the people um, have, or or that someone has uploaded. Yeah, they've had like newspaper things with people's names mentioned and stuff. I was blown away when I, and yeah. overwhelmed and I logged out. But <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, oh god, um, this is for another day. Yeah, it's a lot. It can be a lot. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, but it's so cool to just be able to, like, you know, see your grandfather's name in a newspaper or, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, I've used it. Um, one of the things that I started doing at Hillwood is and one of the aspects of Hillwood that wasn't very well documented that I'm trying to change is what was the staff? What was it like to be a staff person at, at Hillwood when Marjorie was there? 
Yeah. Um, she had a very dedicated staff. She had staff that served with her 30 and 40 years. So That's obviously awesome. she treated them, she treated them very well, but yeah. you know, what was it like to work there? What was it like to be a staff person there? And so I've started, um, I have an exhibit case um, in the staff dining room that every year honors a, a former member of her staff. And it talks that. about who they were, what they did at Hillwood, um, you know, sort of a mini biography, that kind of thing. And, you know, I've used Ancestry to, you know, find when some of these folks came into the country and, you know, where they lived and all, you know, all of those kinds of things. And trying to sort of like bring those folks um back to the present so people have another another way of looking at Hillwood and and uh and an appreciation for the folks that basically worked very quietly behind the scenes to make it all happen yeah that's awesome and it's also like getting to let them have you know their little legacy their mark in the world which is just really freaking cool because I think right and they wouldn't and they and they you know they spent their lives deliberately not doing that right yeah they, they were very content to be behind the scenes and and to just you know support everything that she was doing and and help run the households and and all of that kind of stuff but um you know i think it's something that in recent years we've sort of looked at you know going beyond maybe just the main people and and uh and saying okay well who who supported these people who yeah, made this who possible yeah who made it possible yeah right. cuz it's yeah, there's so many people behind the scenes that, you know, you just never know about. Um, That's that, my cat, by I was the way. Say, is that a, speaking of behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I have, I think, one or two more questions, and we can wrap sure. up real quick, and they're not even big ones. But uh, in terms of, like, looking over new things that come in, uh, do you guys have a special, like, room, or is there, like, a certain... Um, I don't know. Are there certain standards for uh, not even like cleanliness, cleanliness, but also like just uh, certain things you have to do for storing things to protect them like papers or pictures? Yeah. I mean, any, any archives tries to have, um, you know, an archive should have good temperature control and humidity control. Um, So we have a temperature that we definitely want the archive set at, um, you know, we definitely don't want it to be too dry or too humid because that affects the paper uh, documents and products that are in the archives. Honestly, really? Stop. Uh, it's okay. We love, we love <laughs> animals here. She's just nuts. So there's t- so temperature and humidity control, um, fire suppression. Um, you know, you have your, you have your shells built a certain um, um, distance off the floor. So in case there's a flood for some reason, oh, you've got yeah. that dealt with. Um, you know, so there, there's, and, and then in terms of housing the items themselves, yes, we're using acid-free folders. We're using acid-free boxes. Um, everything has, you know, everything that you could think of has an archival, has archival ways to store it, all of which are tremendously expensive. Of course. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Nothing's easy. Um, no, of course not. So, you know, archival quality photo sleeves. I mean, they're all designed to be chemically neutral and not not damage the materials and and all wow. of those kinds of things. So you, yeah, so that's always on your mind when you're looking to, you know, what we call housing objects yeah. you know, or housing documents. Um, you know, there's a, there's a standard that we adhere to in terms of, 
you know, what yeah. we use to take care of those materials. Yeah. Do you happen to know what the right temperature and humidity level is, or is it just like? So temperature wise, we're talking, I, you know, roughly between 68 and 72 degrees. Although we like nice. to keep ours, we like to keep, I like to keep our stack spaces under 70 degrees. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of humidity, you're generally talking between 45 and 55%. Okay. Um, and so we have, we have environmental monitors that are in our stack areas that monitor the, the environmental conditions at all times. And if for some reason something falls out of whack, you know, basically an alarm goes off and it lets our facilities folks know that there's been a problem. Okay. We've had a temperature spike or humidity spike or whatever. Plus, whenever I go in the stacks, I'm always looking at the monitors to see what they say. Yeah, um, you're keeping an eye out. Yeah, so we're we're always keeping an eye an eye out on that. Now, if you're on talking, of, but you know, but then you know, for some of our audio visual materials, we actually uh, have a freezer um, because that's the best way to to preserve. Um, you know, like old home movies and things like that. As we, I didn't we, know that we freeze them. So, Whoa. yeah. So it, so sometimes the temperature and the humidity and all that stuff depends on the type of material as well. Um, so the ranges I gave you are primarily for paper materials and and things like that. Photographs you'd store them a little colder, and then okay. of course, like I said, film would be you know you would, you could freeze it. Um, okay. Most a lot of archives can't afford to do that because as you might imagine, that kind of environmental uh, control is expensive. I'm sure. Um, we're very fortunate in that Hillwood uh, built a brand new collections and research center uh, that we moved into in 2021. Nice. That has all of those things in it. It was actually one of the reasons why I, I took the job at Hillwood because, you know, as an archivist, you could spend your whole career and never work in a building that was intended to house archival materials. Yeah, which Almost is almost inevitably you're in a building that was never intended to do that. And so you always are dealing with some kind of environmental. Putting issue, out a lot of fires metaphorically. Just, and, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, yeah. So the opportunity to actually start out in a building that was basically custom made for what we do was a huge opportunity. Oh yeah. That's great. Cause then you can kind of focus on just getting really into the materials rather than just the preservation taking up so much of your day to day, I'm sure. Um, one or two more questions, I swear. Uh, I feel like a lot of people, <laughs> when they see museums in like common media, like movies and stuff, it, there's always like things about heists. How big of a concern is like someone trying to steal things from your museum, like on a daily basis? Um, it's obviously yeah, I, like you don't want it to happen, but like, are there constant threats? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, would there are constant threats? No, but I think I think the way that you prevent constant threats, or you is you, you're very vigilant. We have a yeah. we have a we have an amazing security team that um, uh, monitors uh, the entire property, um, and you know keeps an eye on us too as yeah. employees. Yeah, you want to um, feel safe. You know, the the sad truth is and... when it comes to at least in my line of work, when it comes to thefts of library and archival materials, it's usually, often an inside job. I was going to say, it's usually a It's often somebody in my line of work and it's, it's disappointing when it happens, but um, it happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, but we have, you know, as you might imagine, you know, we have all of the bells and whistles. I mean, I, you know, none of us are privy to it because we're not, you know, we're not security. <laughs> of course. Um, But, 
you know, the reason you have all those things is to make it so that you don't have those kinds those of incidents. those kinds of issues. Because I mean, you know, it. I mean, beyond the fact that she's beyond the fact that she collected all this amazing art and and objects and things like that. I mean, we have we have pieces of of uh, we have pieces that that have just enormous significance historically. So. Um, we have the crown that was worn by the last Tsarina of of Russia, wow. um, and 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 so you look at this, you look at this, and you say, this was on the head of this woman, who was the last, one of the last rulers of the Romanov dynasty before the you know before the 1917 uprising, and somehow it finds its way all the way here to Hillwood. That's wild. Does has Russia ever tried to be like give that back? No. No, because whatever. Well, because what what happened was after after the after the uh, the revolution, the you know the Bolsheviks basically sold off as much. They're like get it of, out. Yeah, they confiscated all of the royal family's treasures and from the aristocracy and from the church and all of that, and they sold it all. They sold yeah. it all to the West. They were like or good sold riddance. a lot of it because they were trying to they were trying to raise money to finance their regime essentially. So yeah. everything that, you know, that, that she acquired, she acquired on the open market, um, that had been yeah. placed there. And so, you know, there's, there's no, you know, they have no reason to ask for it back, you know, in part, cause they were in such a hurry to get rid of it. To, to get rid with. of it. So they're like, yeah, we're so no going to admit that they wanted to keep anything. Yeah. So it's, a, so it's, you know, we, we get asked that question a lot, um, you know, people say, "Oh, did they ever they ever spat?" But no, it, that 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 never comes up. Well, because there's a there's a story where they tried to do it with Alaska, or they want to do it with Alaska, which is so funny. Um, I don't know if you've heard that, but that's for another time. That they're like, "No, we rented it to you. We want it back." Yeah. Um, well, there's. I mean, there, well, there are other museums that are you know are in hot water. I mean, the British Museum right now. You know, everybody ooh. wants stuff back from the British Museum because, you know, they've you know it's they've been found out as having like lost track of thousands of objects. Um, and uh, one of their staff was systematically stealing from them for years and they were told about it and didn't do anything about it. And so oh, no. now you've got, now you've got countries, you know, who, you know, Greece wants their Elgin marbles back and uh, you know, Nigeria wants some of their, their materials back because well, for multiple reasons, you it's know, like you least. colonized and stole them. Right. <laughs> Exactly. And so, so, you know, repatriation of materials in the museum world is and will continue to be a, a big issue, I think, for years to come. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but there's a difference between, you know, you know, ripping it off the wall because you were, you know, you were colonizing a country versus, you know, buying something on the open market that was put there by the, you know, by the country itself. By the country like, no, we itself. Want, we would rather have yeah. your money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And then this is the last question. And it's not, uh, big ones more like kind of silly I saw on your so on the survey I have a whole bunch of slots for questions and there's one that says chronic illness and you mentioned that you have asthma and I was curious if that ever like if in the line of work you do it ever causes it like flare-ups for your asthma dealing with like older texts and stuff or like no oh. um now I will I mean now any I mean if you're dealing with older materials particularly something that just come into your archives from outside yeah you you may want to be careful with it depending on the condition that it's in um one of my other favorite myths about archives is you will you will routinely see archives referred to as being dusty 
uh, or musty or whatever. And it's, you know, it's always amazing to me that people think that can think we could be such good stewards, but such shitty housekeepers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like this the dust in archives, they don't, I don't, you know, I'm You're not like, sure. I'm not that, in a cave. This isn't. I think people think about their basements and attics and they sort of get that into their head. And, Cause that's where they archive their belongings. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, no, I think it's, and again, if you're, if you're in a building like I am, where you've got this wonderful air handler system and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, you're going to be in, you're going to be in good shape. So it's, there's no, there's no real risk above and beyond what I could get just from say walking outside into the garden that's right out in front of my building. Right. Yeah. Um, you oh, know, good. in the springtime. So no, I don't, I don't, uh, have that. The other thing I will share one other, one other myth, um, please do. And that is, um, the white glove myth. Um, you see archives on TV and in movies and everybody's always wearing white gloves and <laughs> it's, I'm here to tell you it's nonsense no uh, one's doing by it. and large. It's, uh, <laughs> there was a time when people would wear white gloves for certain things, but we use neoprene gloves if we're going to have gloves at all. And then for things like rare books, we don't, we generally don't use gloves. We use our bare hands, make sure they're clean because the tactile sensation in your fingers helps you turn delicate pages without tearing them. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So the next time you see somebody in a, you know, on a TV show or a movie and they're holding a book and they're turning the page with white gloves, you can call bullshit because that's not that's, yeah, it, it that's would not, be uh, too difficult and no one does that. Yeah. We also we also don't spray, you know, lemon juice on the back of the Declaration of Independence, you know, but then we're not all Nicolas Cage, so that's, we don't get to I mean <laughs> uh, you know, and thank God for that. <laughs> um well thank you for doing this, Jason. This was really cool. Um are can people find your books anywhere or like any recommendations for them to check anything out, if not in terms of getting more into archiving um well in, in terms of uh books you know hillwood just published a wonderful book that i was a part of um called uh it's the, about the life and homes of marjorie merriweather post um you can find that online through amazon um you know through the through the hillwood bookshop if you really want if you want to do that too um yeah. it's a wonderful overview of who she was and what the influences on were on her life and her collecting and then examples of all of the um all of the various collections she had including her library and the archives that she, she that she created during her lifetime um you know in terms of archives you know archives.gov the national archives website is a wonderful place to go um to just see what you know, your National Archives is working on. This is the archives of the people, um, you know, that they are responsive to us as citizens. And so they are constantly working on cool historical projects to bring those to, uh, to the public's attention. And there are even ways that you can volunteer and become what they call a citizen archivist and help the National Archives with various projects that they have. So, um, yeah, there are a number, a number of different ways that you can that you can get involved if you're interested in that. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for that information and thanks for everything. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the end of our episode. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was great. Of course. All right. Bye idiots. That concludes this week's episode of ignorance is blessed. I hope you enjoyed the guest. Do you have follow-up thoughts, follow-up questions, get in the Facebook group and start a conversation. Ignorance is hashtag blessed idiots on Facebook. You can search for it or find it on my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash JMS comedy. 
There you can have a chat about this guest. You can ask about future guests. You, you can suggest future guests. I love it all. Please keep giving suggestions and keep asking questions because the more we ask, the more we learn, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we can look down on others who aren't as smart as we are. And isn't that the point? Thank you for listening. And thank you for being patient with my ignorance. See you soon, idiots.